0: It's that hope that has drawn several hundred of us in the middle of this gray March day through the doors of Westminster Presbyterian Church here in downtown Minneapolis, not to mention those of you listening over public radio or watching in due course over TV. It's that personal prospect to die young as late as possible that gives me, Donald Meisel, minister here at Westminster and moderator of these forums, particular delight in introducing today's speaker. It's that theme, to die young as late as possible, that brings well-known anthropologist, social scientist, author, educator, and filmmaker, Ashley Montague, to this podium today. Under that clever title, To Die Young As Late As Possible, lurks significant ethical issues, and that's what we're about in these Westminster Town Hall forums, significant ethical issues. How to treat our elderly. How do we treat ourselves as we grow older? How do we treat our children so as not to do violence to them? How do we treat the child in each of us? How do we let love rather than aggression prevail in our personal lives and in our society? Highly ethical agenda. Before inviting Ashley Montague to address us in these and other arenas, here are a few more things to remember about our guest. Born in England in 1905 and educated at the University of London, Dr. Montague received his PhD from Columbia University and has held appointments at Rutgers, Harvard, the University of California, and Princeton, where he currently lives and teaches. He is the author of more than 60 books, including On Being Human, The Natural Superiority of Women, the nature of human aggression, man's most dangerous myth, the fallacy of race, growing young, and yes, the elephant man. In growing young, he pleads that we as human beings are actually designed to continue to grow and develop as children, and that we are not intended to become ossified adults that we need to rescue ourselves from our mature ways before it is too late. Ashley Montague, please say what you have to say before it's too late. (laughs) Delightful.
1: Well, thank you very much for that charming introduction. Now that I know who I am, I can't wait to hear what I have to say. (laughs) And what I have to say will be reminiscent of a piece of history, at least in my mind, which occurred some years ago when this thing was hung around my neck. Uh, There was a horse on a very hilly campus in the East who conducted himself for 15 years very eminently as the puller of wagon loads of heavy books up and down this hilly campus and after some 15 years it was decided to retire the horse to Oates. So this had to receive the official imprimatur of the Board of Trustees so at the next meeting of the Board the local millionaire trustee suggested that an honorary degree be conferred upon the horse at the next commencement. Whereupon, of course, this outraged the other trustees, and then our local millionaire trustee said, I'll give the university a million dollars. So at the next commencement, the horse was led up on the dais, and the dean of the faculty read a celebration of the merits of the horse, and when he'd concluded, the do- the president stepped forward and hung the hood of the Doctor of Humane Letters around the neck of the horse, and then approached the rostrum and said, Ladies and gentlemen, in my 20 years as president of this institution, this is the first time that I've had the pleasure of conferring an honorary degree upon an entire horse. And... uh, The... That story is not irrelevant to what I'm about to say, because quite clearly the president, when he made that remark, didn't have a very high opinion of what was going on in his institution by way of education. The truth is, of course, that we don't have any education in the Western world. What we mistake and are conditioned in believing is instruction. It is not education at all. Education is even mis-etymologized by those who write textbooks on education, who give the wrong etymological or origin of the word, who spell it E-D-U-C-E-R-E, which means to draw out. And that is a cognate of the actual origin of the word that led to education. And to anglicize the Greek. Uh, it educare, edu-care, to nourish and to cause to grow. That's the original meaning of the word education. And there's the rub. What does one nourish and what does one cause to grow? It was Aristotle in his book Politics, written some 2,300 years ago, who said that if we would know what human beings are born for, we must first understand what they're born as. And it has taken us, at least a few of us, some 2300 years to discover what human beings are born as. We've had all sorts of authorities who have expressed themselves on this subject, and an authority, of course, should be defined as one who should know which means that he doesn't necessarily know what he should know. And nevertheless, if if he comes from another town, he's an expert in addition to being an authority. And if he's written authoritative books which are followed by all the members of the assembly, uh, then he is a guru of education and is followed blindly by those who are called educators. Since in this culture, in the Western world generally, we don't have a very high opinion of educators, since the only measure by which we measure a human being in the Western world is by money that we're willing to pay him for or her for his services or her services. By that measure, teachers, the unacknowledged legislators of the world, are the lowest paid in every community in the Western world, with the exception of Costa Rica, which, interestingly enough, also has no soldiers, no army, but pays its teachers well. And, of course, teachers should be the most highly paid members of our community, because they stand at the very foundations of the making of a human being, even more importantly in many cases than the persons who are called parents, who are for the most part, nothing more nor less in the Western world, in very large numbers, merely genitors who are mistaken for parents. The true parents of a human being are those who parent it, and those who parent it according to the principles by which most Christians in the Western world are allegedly taught to live, namely by the principle of love. But there are so very few people who understand that love is not only good uh, sermon material for Sunday mornings, but is also very good biology. And it's only in relatively recent years that we have discovered what love really is. For example, I could show you love in a test tube, because a person or child at any age is a very different creature, biochemically, from a person who has not been loved. Not only this, I can show it to you in X-rays, and I can show it to you in X-rays so clearly that I would ask you simply to select out of a group of a hundred x-rays something that you see in some of these x-rays that you don't see in the others and you'd be able to do this with a hundred percent accuracy because you would see that the bones have grown differently in very marked ways simply as a result of not being adequately loved. This also occurs to some extent in children during the growing period in their bones who have been bedridden with a serious illness for a long time. But of course there is no more serious illness than the deprivation of love, from which many children die for no other reason than that they have not been loved. Up to uh, the beginning of this century, and even into this century, it was called by a Greek word marasmus, meaning wasting away which meant that those who uh, so-called it had the foggiest idea as to what was happening and what was the cause of this wasting away. As um, Goethe in uh, his play Faust makes Mephistopheles say, where an idea is wanting, a word can always be found to take its place. And I'm very glad to hear the elements are approving of what I'm saying with this thunder. Thunderous applause outside. Not only an idea is wanting, a word can always be found to take its place, but a whole philosophy can be built on the basis of it. And we, of course, don't really learn how to think in our schools, in our colleges. What we learn to think is what to think by being caused to engorge large quantities of rote remembered facts and certain ritual occasions called examinations to regurgitate these onto blank sheets of paper and those having the highest regurgitative capacities are considered the brightest and the best and we go on to colleges and universities and take BA degrees and MA degrees and doctor's degrees and die there intellectually and spiritually by degrees and and those who have the highest regurgitative capacities are considered the brightest and the best. Um, I know from long experience, um, now about 60-70 years duration or more in such institutions, That certainly in our colleges and the present time in our universities, that most students uh, take a university and a college to be a job qualifying institution, whereas its primary purpose should be the making of a human being by encouraging that baby right through its growth and development in its basic behavioral needs. We know about basic physical needs, such as the need for oxygen, for liquid, for sleep, for rest, for activity, bowel and bladder elimination, and the like. These basic physical needs must be satisfied if the organism is to survive. What we have not known is that there is an even more important group of basic behavioral needs, not instincts. Human beings don't have any instincts, and that's why to be born human is to be born in danger, because you are free of instinctive responses, or rather reactions, to the stimuli which in other animals bring out the appropriate reaction. Human beings don't have such reactive inherited basic instinctual needs. What we do have as a result of our unique evolutionary history is a tremendous flexibility, malleability. If you want one trait that describes human beings and differentiates them from any other, it is educability. We are the most educable creatures on this earth, which means Again, to be in danger, because you're not only capable of learning a lot of sound things, you're also capable of learning a lot of unsound things together. And when you put the unsound and the sound together, you don't get intelligence, you get confusion. And that's what state is of most human beings. They're in a state of confusion, because they have been conditioned, in other words, taught, learned a great many unsound things as if they were profound and eternal truths. And one of these most unfortunate procedures that we subject our children to is from the moment of conception on. And with no time to go into the details, but very simply to say very briefly that what happens in the 266 and a half days between conception and birth is perhaps more important than anything that happens subsequently because that embryo and fetus is very, very subject to the influences of what happens to his or her mother and will be received by every cell in the body of that embryo and that fetus from the mother and affect its growth and development and even its brain development, which we now know from literally hundreds of thousands of studies of the prenatal life of the infant. I've written a book. Uh, which is called prenatal influences, weighs four and a half pounds and is a classic, which means that it's out of print and unread. That's the definition of a classic. And then there is a popular version, which is also out of print, called life before birth, in which these details are set forth for the benefit of potential actual mothers and fathers on what to avoid during the period of um, intrauterine life of the child. And the child, of course, has to be born where? In a hospital. After all, is not pregnancy a disease? Great experts have told us this, have written that this is so, and so a baby is born in a hospital the largest percentage of cases. And who brings the baby into the world? Well, in the first place, babies bring themselves into the world. They initiate the changes which result in labor and which last about 18 hours on the average in the firstborn and half that time the subsequent born and in the womb the baby, if he's not interfered with, has a tremendously happy life because the temperature and the pressure are constant. The second law of thermodynamics is perfectly satisfied and he lives what the psychoanalysts call a nirvana-like existence. You know what psychoanalysis is. It's the study of the id by the odd. And, <laughs> uh, if there are any psychiatrists in the audience and they feel lonely, let me give you a definition of a psychiatrist as a non swimmer acting as a lifeguard. And, here we have a psychoanalytic view written by a leading, the leading psychoanalyst of England in a book published in 1970 by International University Press, in which on page 8 he writes as follows about the newborn baby. And this is the way to think of a newborn baby, and you will see that what he is actually saying is uh, scientific in quotes. Um explanation of original sin or innate depravity which when I was a child especially on Sundays was full of intangible restraints and made it a sin to listen to secular music or take a walk in the park. And so Dr. Edward Glover the psychoanalyst he was a Scotsman by the way and therefore I believe very much influenced by the misinterpretation of Calvinism <laughs> a, um, says, expressing these technical discoveries, psychoanalysis, I can assure you, has made no technical technical discoveries. I've taught uh, psychoanalysis for about 50 years and a great admirer of Freud. Uh, Freud doesn't have to be right every time. The important thing about Freudian theories is not whether they're true or false. The important thing about a theory is whether it's fruitful. Fruitful. And if it's fruitful, then it is doing very well indeed, and Freud has been very fruitful indeed. However, to return to Dr. Edward Glover, he writes as follows. Expressing these technical discoveries in social terms, we can say that the perfectly normal infant is almost completely egocentric, greedy, dirty, violent in temper, destructive in habit, Profoundly sexual in purpose, aggrandizing in attitude, devoid of all but the most primitive reality sense, without conscience of moral feeling, whose attitude to society is opportunist, inconsiderate, domineering and sadistic. And when we come to consider the criminal type labeled psychopathic, it will be apparent that many of these characteristics can under certain circumstances, persist into adult life. In fact, judged by adult social standards, the normal baby is, for all practical purposes, a born criminal. See? So, <laughs> so next time you see a baby, you know how to behave toward him. A born criminal. And this is the expert. Now, what that baby is born as is the most wonderful creature probably in the universe, full of wonderful potentialities, amazing potentialities. And these potentialities are its basic behavioral needs, furthermore, they are part of its genetic constitution. Now this will appall some geneticists to hear such a statement, that basic behavioral needs could be part of the genetic system. Well, I've written five books on genetics. One weighs about five pounds and over a thousand pages long, full of mathematics and biochemistry and so forth. And I can assure you that the basic behavioral needs of babies are in the genetic constitution of babies and constitute his basic his basic value system. A value value is what we are interested in. What that baby is interested in is having his needs satisfied. Having lived these 266 and a half days in his mother's womb, in this nirvana-like existence, he is subjected to a rather long series of traumatic experiences in getting born, of shocks, because if you examine him immediately after born, he shows all the biochemical and other changes which are associated with shock. And um, what he is looking forward to is a continuation of this life that he's led in the womb. He's looking forward to a womb with a view. Um, <laughs> but it's perfectly true. He's looking forward to a symbiotic continuation with this organism, his mother, who has been beautifully prepared and ministering to his needs while he's in the womb and is being beautifully prepared to minister to to the needs of the child after birth. And what he is looking forward to is beyond everything else, the satisfaction of the need for love. And love is a demonstrative act. It's not something you talk about only, it's something you must do something about, and it consists of conferring survival benefits in a creatively enlarging manner upon the other. And what that child is able to do for his mother is wondrous if he is put to suckle its mother's breast. And this is generally interfered with because he should be put to suckle at his mother's breast even before the placenta is cut or tied. Unfortunately, there's no time to go into this at the moment, but there will be a question and answer period, so you can ask about that or anything else you like. And what he is in addition born with is not only this need for love, which I'd better spell out in plain English, because you can... Sp- Spell it out in scientific terms, but since most people won't understand the scientific terms, and not even a scientist knows what he's talking about, unless he can put it in plain English, I will put it in plain English. It is the conferring upon the other of your profound interest in their welfare by demonstrative acts, so to communicate to the other your profound interest in their welfare, such that you can depend upon them, they can depend upon you, that you will communicate to them by your demonstrative acts, that you will be standing by, that you will never commit the supreme treason, that people commit against others of letting them down, when they most stand in need of you, because all people stand in need of you all the time that you will be giving them all the supports, all the succour, all the nourishment, and all the encouragements for the growth and development of their basic behavioral needs. The need for love beyond all others. What I've just said is a description of love. The need not only to be loved, but to love others is what this baby wants. To be friendly, for need for friendship, for sensitivity... For wonder, for curiosity, for imagination, for explorativeness, for experimental mindedness, for inventiveness, for imagination, for creativity, for song, for dance. These are all in your genetic system and that baby who's only half gestated when he's born, he's only completed half his gestation period, the other half takes about another ten months outside the womb. He is born very incompletely, biochemically, physiologically, and so on, and also very well prepared to respond to all the stimulations that he is expecting to have satisfied, and which we deny for the most part because we are locked into a way of bringing up the child without understanding that our role should be nothing more nor less than the encouragement of these basic behavioral needs for love, for wonder, for curiosity and so on. And we are designed by the evolutionary process to grow and develop not into the psychosclerotic mind-hardened creatures that we have been conditioned into being but into these loving creatures full of warmth who live as if to live and love were one Creative, unique, because every child that is born is unique, and there will never be another like that child. And the greatest wealth of humanity lies in bringing up the richness with which every child is endowed, and together to make a world in which there are no strangers, only friends whom we have not yet met, to grow and develop as children. And so, Dearly beloved brethren and sisters, the idea is to die young if one will only grow and develop in the childlike qualities with which the child is born. To die young as late as possible. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Dr. Montague. In my study just before the program, you asked, uh, is the uh, radio broadcast live? And I had the audacity to say, well, that really rather depends on you. And I would say your presentation was very much alive. Uh, I have to share with you the fact that I am the chairman of the Macalester College Honorary Degree Committee, and uh, I relish the story with which you began. I couldn't help but think, as you said, educationally we die by degrees, to remember the definition of M.D., D.D., and L.L.D., Mersey dotes, dozy dotes, and little lamsey divy. Yeah. <laughs> we'll take a moment now to let those who must uh, leave the sanctuary do so, to give you an opportunity, those of you who are remaining, to fill out your cards, yellow cards, with questions and to pass them to the aisle. Let me simply remind the radio audience that you've been listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, originating from Westminster Presbyterian Church in downtown Minneapolis, that our speaker has been and is Ashley Montague, anthropologist, social scientist, author. Our co-sponsors today, and we rejoice in them, B.C. Gamble and P.W. Scogmo Foundation and the James R. Thorpe. Foundation. Let me also indicate to the radio audience that, that if you'd like to phone in a question, we'll do our best to honor those phoned-in questions, and our phone number is 332-3421. 332-3421. Well, Dr. Montague, would you return, sir, to the podium and, and let us begin with, with uh, a question or two? Uh, as others come from the uh, audience. Uh, In reading some of your material, I was interested in your definition of health. Would you be willing to to define health in your terms?
1: Well, principally, it's mental health, and since mental health seriously affects physical health—in fact, there's no separation really between the two—mental health is the ability to love, the ability to work the ability to play, and the ability to use your mind as a fine instrument of precision. Mm -hmm. Good. Another reference. You spoke
0: of the religion of economics. Would you comment a little more on that? I think you touched on it in your address, but uh, would you elaborate, sir? Well, most
1: Americans are taught the religion of living business as a way of life, instead of a way of making a living. Mm -hmm. There was a great, in quotes, uh, President Calvin Coolidge who said that the business of a democracy is business. could not have been more wrong in my opinion. But then when he died, someone once remarked, how do they know? (laughs) All right,
0: do you have some? What do you think, this is from the audience, what do you think about the tough love approach for teenagers?
1: Well, tough love, I don't know really what that means. Love cannot be tough. Love has a gentleness and a kindness and a sensitivity and a friendliness which involves no element of love, of toughness in it. If there is such a thing as the approach of tough love, it's a contradiction, very definitely in terms, and a pathological phenomenon.
0: (laughs) Uh, This relates to the... uh approval that uh, came during the introduction where I described uh, some of your book titles. Will the speaker please autograph my natural superiority of women? Um, (laughs)
1: Well, how would you like it, on your back or front?
0: question from the audience. Looking at the strife and warfare in the world today, do you still defend the basic cooperative nature of
1: humankind? Not only defend it, but there's no other possibility of solving the problems of the world without cooperation. It is only possible through love, through cooperation. Competition and violence will simply exacerbate the problem. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and so, um, is if I may go. Please on, do, um, please do. I was explaining the other day the difference between a capacity and a ability. A capacity is a potentiality, like the ability to speak. You'll never speak unless you are trained to speak. And trained capacity is an ability. And I also. Uh, Added the explanation uh, for the difference between uh, well two other common words, uh, and explained that um, what a calamity is. A calamity is well if Mr. Reagan fell into the Potomac, that would be a calamity. If someone fished him out again, that would be a catastrophe. <laughs>
0: Say a few words about the importance of wonder for adults staying young.
1: Well, wonder is, of course, another word for being extremely interested in the whole of the universe that you're capable of embracing. And the only way of ever becoming an interesting person is to be interested. And so, to wonder how we got to be the way we are now, to wonder what the disasters are that we encounter every day, what the meaning is of virtually anything whatsoever, is all very enlarging, not only to the spirit, but also to the health. Because the brain has to be exercised by wonder and by thinking, and was no less a person than Einstein, who said to me, that my ability to wonder, to fantasize, I regard as my most valuable of all traits. And this is in fact so for any human being and every human being.
0: Thank you. Do you have any thoughts uh, to share on our society's attitudes toward the word old?
1: Oh, indeed, I would abolish the word old completely. You see, we are locked into a self-fulfilling prophecy in which we have stages. There's the stage of babyhood, infancy, uh, ch- early childhood, later childhood, middle childhood, adolescence, um, maturity, adulthood, and so on. First place, there are no stages. These are all arbitrary inventions of people who have had nothing better to do than to sit down and invent them. And they should be abolished. If growth is increase in amplitude, development is increase in complexity, and we are designed continuously to grow and develop in our basic behavioral needs without any intervention of stages, this one or that one, or periods or whatnot. What was the question? <laughs> <laughs> uh. What did I think of the word old? That's right. And so all our authorities are locked into this way of thinking. And our textbooks are written in this is the way we think. If you believe that you're going to grow old, you will grow old. Uh-huh. Whatever you really believe is part of your organic system. And that will affect the way you get out of a chair, the way you stand up, the way you walk, the way you bend, and so forth. You must exercise all the days of your life, your body. We belong to a group of animals called the primates, or the primates really, to give this Latin connotation, in all. but in order not to give offense to those members of the church who are called primates, we call them primates, <laughs> and the order to which they belong, primates. These are the most active animals in the world. We are the most sedentary. But we're not designed to be sedentary, so we need a lot of exercise, not only of the body but of the brain. Otherwise the brain will run to fat, and it has in most people, alas. So away with the idea of aging, I'm 83 years of age. I've just completed a series of long lectures, and here I am again, still awake and alive. What is your view
0: of the trend toward two working parents and children in daycare from an early
1: age? Would you repeat that question? Yes.
0: From the audience, what is your view of the trend toward two working parents in a family and children in daycare, therefore, from an early age on?
1: Well, parents, two working parents, and children in daycare is perfectly all right if you arrange it in such a way that the parents can be with their children the greater part of their children's early years, meaning until they go off to college. And I, <laughs> and I have in my book, The Natural Superiority of Women, which was published 40 years ago and is still in print, suggested a very simple procedure, that no man or woman should be required to work during the, bringing up their children more than four hours a day, in a five-day week. And they can choose the hours of their working so that they spend most of their time together. And as for daycare, daycare should be associated wherever possible with a place of employment or where the parents work. Well, This, of course, leads me to the fact that the first thing I would do would be to abolish the automobile. Then I would raise the whole of the United States to the ground and begin again with small populations living of about 25,000 people in a town surrounded by green belts with an acre or two of land which they can cultivate, but therefore no one has to use any vehicle whatsoever to get to work, but, will work uh, but can walk to work, and so on. All this is a possibility. But before we get to that, of course, we will have to arrange it for parents to work in complementary ways, and this would cost very much less money than Mr. Reagan has been spending on armaments.
0: Question from the floor. How would you advise a parent of an infant to use both discipline and freedom in raising a child?
1: There is no greater and more perfect discipline than love. You don't have to think of discipline in the terms of the Puritan idea of uh, discipline, which involved a certain amount of punishment for sinful acts. the idea of a child being born original sin is very unsound. It's an interesting idea, but it's had a very damaging effect. And love has a discipline of its own which nothing else can equal, which tells the child when you say no, that that no is as well-intentioned for its benefit as your yes. A child with former experience of your no's will know that that is the case. And even though they may experience the no as a frustration, that is a thwarting of an expected satisfaction, they will very quickly pass into an understanding that this is for your welfare. And as for punishment, we make work a punishment. We punish children by causing them to indulge in various things we call chores, and work. Work should be, of course, one of the greatest pleasures of life, akin to the basic behavioral need of thinking, which is problem solving. Work should be problem solving, a very great pleasure, and the harder the work, the greater the pleasure. But we make a chore of it, and we want to avoid work. A child should never be physically treated, maltreated, corporeally punished. This is very wrong indeed. <laughs> Next
0: question. Please suggest what I, having long ago been born and, quote, educated, unquote, can do specifically to die young as late as possible.
1: Well, to understand fully that living the life of a developed child, when I say live as a child, I don't mean rested at the level of a child, but to continue to grow, growth is of the essence of the process of growing and developing. It means increase in amplitude, in amplitude of your basic behavioral needs. And so, cultivate those childlike interests. In Matthew um, 2 uh, 25 it well, says, at that time, Jesus answered and said I thank thee, O Father Lord of heaven and earth everything that is good, like love wonder creativity the opportunity to think, to learn to be encouraged and all these basic behavioral needs, that is what that child is looking forward to and what we do to that child is to impose ourselves upon the development of the child's own unique self and teachers impose their selves, the culture, the media, impose these selves upon the child and the child has to go around carrying these inauthentic selves around him right into the rest of his life and wearing these inauthentic foreign selves like so many uncomfortable clothes, attire, apparel knowing that something is very uncomfortable about being but having no idea what it may be and if deprived of love and brought up in an environment in which you're told you've got to be a success in terms of external validations of success drive the right car Uh, live in the right part of town marry the right spouse send your uh, children to the right kind of orthodontist and so on Uh, then you will get frightful confusion and a lust for power which will make you either into a lawyer or a doctor or a politician or a criminal or a murderer because what Violence in these forms and power means very briefly, every time you see hostility or violence in a child or anyone else, you should know that it is love frustrated. That's what it is. I am looking for love, a substitute for love. I want to draw your attention to my need. And when that child in the classroom becomes even worse a problem than he was before you started giving him your love, know that he is testing you because he has been failed so often by people who said they loved him that he no longer trusts them. So he will test you. But if you never desist from offering him this love, you will find that you will eventually succeed. These are not theories. These are facts. And I have verified them in my own experience again and again, not only with children, but with adults. Mm
0: -hmm. Thank you. Thank you. Another comment or question from the floor. The lobby for senior citizens is very strong in this country. Given the limited resources available, how do we decide between the urgent needs of children and those of the aged? Our seniors being overstated?
1: Seniors' needs,
0: seniors' needs.
1: No, the seniors' needs are not being overstated. They have been one of the most neglected segments of our culture. And we have, as it were, sort of swept them under the rug until suddenly we've begun to realize that in a very short time we will have a very large number of people who are over the age of 65. And no provision has been made in our society for affording them, the opportunities to continue to go on growing in health, in development. And by giving them those opportunities, we must first know what they must be. It is not sufficient to think of putting them into colonies of the old, or to put them into nursing homes or other institutions, but it is important to recognize that if we had a culture that encouraged The growth and development of people into what we call old age, which is a term I would discontinue, but substitute the word growth to keep on growing, we wouldn't really have any necessity for institutions except for those who are physically impaired and who have no other protectors. Furthermore, insofar as children are concerned, children are the true lovers of animals and the true lovers of older people so that we need to realize that the young and the people who have grown with the years to whatever advanced age should be brought together and live together. And we've had plenty of experiments in recent years in which we've seen the tremendous benefits which accrue to the so-called old from this interchange between children and the old children love old people, just as they love animals.
0: (laughs) A related question, uh, drawing out perhaps the more on what you've just said. Are we improving in our attitudes toward senior citizens?
1: Well, I think there has been some improvement toward uh, senior citizens, as it's called. I wouldn't use the term senior citizens either. This is sort of, um, well, not a term uh, which I would uh, use, is patronizing. Hmm. And um, what was the question? <laughs> <laughs> are, are we improving
0: in our attitudes regarding yes, I senior think, citizens? Yes, I
1: think we are. We are recognizing that um, the people who we call senior citizens are really human beings and are not to be relegated to institutions where they are out of the way. Uh, not so many years ago, uh, the older people, as they were called, the parents, etc., stayed until their death with their children. Today, as a result of that worst and most disastrous of all inventions, the automobile, they may live 3,000 miles away from each other, and in any event, the attitude toward parents has been that parents' responsibility has been to support their children into their, the children's, old age. If um, they are incapable of doing so or have completed this task, their role is ended and they're pretty much in the way. I find this a very widespread attitude. And I think until we have humanized people... You see, I don't regard there are many human beings around. A human being lives as if to live and love were one. And I don't encounter very many of these characters because adults are nothing more nor less than deteriorated babies. (laughs) They've been deteriorated by the process of socialization. (laughs) Uh, There wouldn't be any problem. On the other hand, in other cultures called primitive because they've never heard of a Sermon on the Mount or the Principles of Jeffersonian Democracy. They somehow have to live more closely by them than we do. So we are civilized and they are primitive. There they venerate older people because they are the repositories of the accumulated wisdom of the culture and are highly respected. And you can still see this. You don't have to go out of America among the American Indians, who we are, of course in the process, as white, loving Christians, very busy exterminating, and have been for the last 350 years. How many Americans at the present moment are interested in what's going on with the American Indian, the injustices that are at every moment being committed against the surviving peoples? And you know what? When I was a student. I learned five American Indian languages, and in every one of these languages, they have the same idea for the description of a white person. White people are the people who beat their children. And any people who are capable of doing that were, of course, capable of behaving the way whites behaved toward Indians. Hmm. To honor
0: a question uh, that's come in from the radio audience, please comment On reproductive technologies such as surrogate motherhood, surgery performed on babies inside the womb and uh, screening for defects. Routine.
1: Well, in the first place the reproductive technology is a possibility that has become a probability and a reality. A possibility and a probability are not necessarily inevitable or good and I'm utterly opposed to this idea on every respect whatsoever, including surrogate motherhood. I also am opposed to the idea of the principle of the cancer cell, unregulated and uncontrolled reproduction. I've just come from Los Angeles, which um, some people have described as a pocket edition of hell. I I would describe Los Angeles uh, as follows, that hell is a pocket edition of Los Angeles <laughs> because of the automobile, the pollution, and the kind of people who are uh, attracted by uh, physical uh, comforts. Of course, the sun shines there. There's a large correlation between people who are attracted by physical comforts and their lack of spiritual Characteristics, and this I find very true in virtually the whole of California. And so, in so far, well, it's the land of perpetual pubescence where they mistake cultural lag for renaissance, and where they used to have the lower three R's Reagan, Rafferty, the commissioner of education, and the Regents. And um, so. <laughs> I I would regulate population we are greatly overpopulated in America in India they have babies one million babies are born a month half of whom die within the first six months and so on we have in our culture an enormous number of babies who are born or literally thrown away who haven't a chance to grow and develop as healthy human beings and when they resort to crack and other drugs and to crime etc of course what is the best way to approach them and to deal with them is of course to punish them, put them in a jail, build more jails and this is of course insane, this is why I regard most people as insane who live in the western world and by insanity I mean the inability to discharge your obligations in a responsible manner and to serve yourself and others in a responsible manner.
0: Thank you. Dr. Mowell, you were reaching uh, toward the end of our hour together. I'm glad the Bible was open to Matthew 12 and that you quoted it. I'm not certain whether this program is going to be rebroadcast in California. (laughs) (laughs) But if, in conclusion, I would like the privilege of reading some of your own words back to you. Eccentricity has always abounded where strength of character has abounded, and the amount of eccentricity in a society has generally been proportional to the amount of genius, vigor, and moral courage which it contained. That so few dare to be eccentric marks the chief danger of the time, Ashley Montague, thank you for being so marvelously eccentric.